If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Women Physicians Lead, hosted by Dr. Lisa Herbert, helps women physicians move from surviving to thriving in their personal and professional lives. Dr. Lisa shares leadership tips, burnout support, stress management strategies, and inspiration from women physicians who've made remarkable transitions into leadership roles. There's a fantastic episode that you should check out called Taking Care of Yourself During the Journey about how women physicians can care for themselves while on their leadership journeys. Check out Women Physicians Lead on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Raj Sundar, a family physician and a community organizer. You're listening to Healthcare for Humans, the show dedicated to educating you on how to care for culturally diverse communities so you can be a better healer. This is about everything that you wish you knew to really care for the person in front of you, not just a body system. Let's learn together. Today's episode is all about mental health. And it's actually a panel featuring some guests that you may be familiar with. Ahmed Ali, episode four and five, talking about the Somali community. Joseph Seiya, episode six and seven, talking about the Pacific Islander community. Jennifer Huang and James Hang, episode 10 and 11, about the Kamai community. It was an opportunity that I didn't imagine would come to fruition to get all of these incredible guests that have been on the podcast before together in person, in a panel, to dive deeper into a topic that we only touched upon in their episodes. Because sometimes when I'm having these conversations about different communities, I feel that mental health is all we're talking about. I had the gift of facilitating this panel with Morhoff, a family physician and leader in mental health, particularly within the collaborative care model or integrated mental health. It was such a pleasure to co-facilitate this panel with him. Honestly, I'm not sure how to give you a summary of this episode, given it covered such a wide array of issues with so many experts that I just mentioned. But here are some key points that made me think. The historical context of mental health in immigrant communities, specifically the evolution and nuanced aspects of communicating mental health and suffering over time, and how our current descriptions fall short of capturing the rich context of experiences in mental health. The need to redefine mental health based on core needs of communities, such as belonging, connection to land and ancestral roots the inadequacies of our mental health systems and the potential harm in their current design. Rooted in questionnaire-based assessments, you've been there, how many questionnaires do you get about your mental health these days? And how many times do you have to repeat yourself over and over? And how often does that overshadow narratives and personal stories? The urgency to reform mental health systems and emphasizing the importance of considering recreating it all if reforming our current system is not enough. What does that mean to think of it like that? Okay, that was a lot. I know. But you'll know exactly what I mean after you listen to this episode. This episode will ultimately prompt you to reflect on what it truly means to care for people's mental health and build inclusive healthcare systems where people are no longer muted by silent struggles. It's a transformation of mental health care into a space 
that accommodates and resonates with the unique journeys of those who have migrated here in search of a better life. Without further ado, here it is. Welcome to the panel, which is called Beyond Boundaries, Strengthening Community Ties and Mental Health Equity. I'm Raj Sundar. I'm a family physician and I'm a district medical director at Kaiser Permanente and the host of a podcast called Healthcare for Humans. And I'll be helping facilitate this panel today along with my friend I'm family physician at the University of Washington. I'm one of the planners for the theme of the social justice for this conference. So we heard about Raj's uh, podcast and we thought, come and work your team. So that's what we have here today. I love it. You're my team. I'm so excited because all of these people you see here were on my podcast and I have never met them. This is the first <laughs> time I'm meeting them. And I will say... For each person, I recorded a few hours sometimes of conversation. So cumulative, I've listened to you all for eight hours. You don't know this, but I've listened and re-listened to everything they've said over that span of time. There's a quote that says, the shortest distance between two people is a story, right? And using voice, story, and conversation was one of my primary goals to bridge the gap between what healthcare systems were offering and when communities were needing to heal because that gap that I was feeling, I felt like other people were feeling as well. And I was so grateful because people you see here were on my podcast sharing their wisdom, both their lived experience being part of the community, but also as community leaders and advocates. And I learned so much from them, but there was a lot of unanswered questions and a common topic that came up was mental health. So today we're going to spend some time talking about mental health with these brilliant people. <laughs> I'll do a quick introduction and then they can add on as well and however they want to add on to all their accomplishments. But right here next to me is Jennifer Huang, who is at University of Washington, Harborview. And the main thing that you should know about her is whenever you try to look up how to care for Cambodian community, her name's going to come up. <laughs> And she's worked with the International Travel Medicine Clinic for a long time in all their iterations of figuring out how to care for the Cambodian and the different communities they care for. And then next to her, I had Ahmed Ali, who's a pharmacist and the founder of Somali Health Board. And if y'all don't know the Health Board, it is an innovative approach to bridge this gap between healthcare system and community because public health was not it. And the health board was a model to do that effectively. And I remember this image of him still, of all the media articles of getting the COVID vaccine and being out there amplifying what he was doing because vaccine hesitancy was such a big deal, right? And we didn't know how do we get people to trust this vaccine that we're putting out there. And we kept asking that question. But in order to make vaccines trustworthy, so much of it was who was getting the vaccine. And how are we getting that word out? And Ahmed was out there doing it. And I think there was a lot of celebration on gaining trust that way. And he was able to accomplish that. And then next to him, Joseph, say yeah. He was the founder of Pikawa, which is the Pacific Islander Community Association of Washington. And one of the key pillars of the Pacifica community, which is the Pacific Islander community. And currently he is with the Department of 
health and is the equity and social justice strategist. He has a few other roles there. And he's the person that I know talks about all of these big topics like erasure, sovereignty, that we don't acknowledge enough. And he says it so clearly and directly. And I love that about you, Joseph. We're going to start off actually talking about mental health and what it means to you, because sometimes it feels to me that healthcare has an understanding of mental health that is not the same as the community. So maybe the first question, and we'll just go left to right, is what does mental health mean to your community? And what does it mean to talk about it in a culturally responsive way? Oh my gosh, they're looking at me. I feel the pressure. But yeah, Joseph, I want to acknowledge Coast Salish people and those that have come here before in this land and also the land and the water and the elements that continue to teach us as a Pacific Islander person. I think that mental health uh, for me as a Pacific Islander and indigenous person to the Pacific, it's acknowledging who was here first. And it's also a way of being a part of an ecology where you are an individual within that ecology and you're in relationship to everything else, right? And so in the Samoan tradition, we call it fasinomanga, which is this sense of purpose that everybody is born with. Everybody's born with dignity, the sense of purpose that is tied to land, that is tied to sea, that is tied to your role within the village. And to me, mental health is understanding your fasinomanga that is really rooted in right relationship with everything that is around you in the context of a village. So you weren't born by yourself as an individual. And so we often see the failure that is with Western sort of healing modalities and clashing with indigenous modality, which is really rooted in right relationship with everything else around us. So mental health for me is looking at ways to restore the connection that everybody has to their ancestors, to the earth, to their histories, and making sure that all of that matters in the context of mental health. Thanks. Joseph, and good evening, everyone. My name is Ahmed Ali, as I mentioned earlier. And thank you just for the acknowledgement. I am an immigrant to this country. And it's always great when we're in spaces to acknowledge the ancestors of this land. And for me as an immigrant, it's one more step to that in the sense that we came as a refugee and to be able to understand who was here before us. Mental health is quite complicated, as you can all imagine, as clinicians, healthcare providers, just for the mainstream individual let alone for someone who has come here as an immigrant refugee, because there are so many compounding factors, especially for immigrant refugees who have gone through turmoil, civil war, displacement. From a Somali perspective, for the community that I work and come from, mental health is extremely complicated in the sense that there are certain words, there are certain understandings from the Western perspective, whereby you can actually separate between biological, physical differences as a, when a patient or an individual goes to see their doctor. Within the Somali context, mental health is you're either crazy or you're not. There's nothing in between. There are certain words which depression, anxiety, schizophrenia do not exist. And so you can only imagine if you're actually caring for a patient, how difficult it is for them to actually express themselves. As a pharmacist, I can talk to an individual who was born and raised here for generations. Their families have been here and I can explain to them what they're taking the medication for, or they can tell me what depression symptoms they're going through. But it's a little bit more challenging, difficult for a Somali person to actually convey that message. And sometimes if the clinician is not culturally understanding, what they will get is actual somatic or physical ailment descriptions, but they're actually trying to describe a mental health issue that's going on in their life. So it's very spiritual. 
folks who are oftentimes going through mental health will initially try to go through either mosque or religious spaces before they actually go see their physician or any doctor that they need to go see. So for me, from a cultural perspective, as a Somali individual, it's very complicated. And we've done a lot of work, and we'll talk about that later on within the Somali Health Board, trying to bridge that Western medicine perspectives of mental health, and then also the barriers that come along from a cultural perspective, whether it is a language or cultural or religious, and we'll hopefully we'll dive into that as well. Hi, my name is Jennifer Huang, and also I was a caseworker cultural mediator for a program called Community House Call at Harborview Medical Center. And last month was 29 years the program existed. It started with a two-year grant, but now we have a team of 10 caseworkers speak like four or five different languages. I personally only work for my population, Cambodian slash Khmer, and I came as a refugee to this country, and I came after the Khmer rules. I lived through those period of time as a child, and coming here was a culture shock. On top of it, we have gone through this traumatic war experience, and a lot of the population that I saw come here as a single mother. A lot of men were killed during the war. And the parent who, my uncle who raised me, I came with my aunt. And I came here in my teenager's time. And it was very hard learning to speak the language and learning to a new culture. And I was the oldest in the family to be independent. You can imagine what it is. Those are already a mental health for me crisis that I had. But I have lived through that now past almost 50, 30 years, 40 years already. So last month was a, on April 17 was the Cambodian anniversary of 45 years, 50 years of the war. And the patient that I work with, not everyone gone through it, but let's say uh, this um, Women and this generation, especially my people, they are illiterate, no education at all, even in their own language. And you can imagine the, um, a single mother with three kids, you know, coming to this country and living in a housing project and getting a welfare, crime of gang and children drop out of school and all those stuff. And 40 years right now, mental health haven't been taking care of any of us. <laughs> and now I'm getting into my late adulthood, and it's very challenging. So mental health also a strange things in my communities. People don't believe in counseling. People don't believe go to a stranger and tell them their story, and that they say what can help. They only know anything will cure with pill, medicine. But then... I remember when I first started to work, I trained to become a medical interpreter. I'm a certified DSHA in Washington State for medical interpreter. So when I learned those, you go to school for medical school how many years? And I just came out from high school and college and then learning with this provider and all this terminology. And my people had no clue between biological and psychological. They don't even know the organ inside their body. And then the terminology mental health in our culture is 
mental illness is like crazy. And those, when you have children or family member who are crazy, who are disabled, people don't want to talk about it. They isolate it because it ruins your family reputation. And your community is very small. And they don't know where to get the help either. And then I remember my first work, I went to interpret it. I was still young at that time, and there's a middle-aged woman, and described to the doctor that she had all this pain. And they run all these tests, and then they say she had no problem. And we say, what do I have then? Mm-hmm. And those are all symptomatic of yeah. mental health, yeah. PTSD, depression, anxiety, all these kinds. And then they start to prescribe medicine. And then when they started, they say, oh, make me too sleepy, and then I make me too more crazy. So they don't take, and they just take the pill. And when we do a home visit, you open the cabinet, all the pill in there. And for the 30 years that I've been working at the hospital, every time I help my clinician and the doctor that I work with and I told them, and I bring them to the community, trying to educate them little by little, can I ask you a question? Sure. You have so much always, wisdom yeah. in there. There's so many points you made. And I'm yeah. wondering, there's a common theme of a misalignment, I would say, of definition of mental health, mm-hmm. right? as you are listening, because from a healthcare system, it's ICD-9, 10, whatever we're using mm-hmm. now, right? Codes of depression, anxiety, PTSD. And Joseph was talking about bigger things, purpose, belonging, not even just in a small two-family household, but belonging with Earth and our ancestors. And part of it is the cultural stigma around mental health. We've heard of that before, too, of the definition of crazy or not crazy is what people think of as mental health. And I'm wondering, maybe the follow-up question here is, for you all doing this work, how have you bridged that gap? We know it's so different. We need to bring it together somehow to move forward. And what has that looked like for you, Ahmed? I know you mentioned something, and I know maybe Joseph, too, in your own ways. I'll jump in. I think Amit did mention the lack of the maybe the lack of language within the communities. But I also like just want to remind folks the, of the empire apparatus that was responsible for assimilating whole communities, whether it's through antebellum slavery, militarism and regions of East Africa and also in Cambodia and also in the islands. Just the boarding schools that we have heard from like our indigenous brothers and sisters in Canada and also here in the U.S., and how like a lot of that language was stolen, erased, or forced out of people, beaten out of people, killed out of people, genocided out of people. And so I just want to recognize those dynamics there that some of us that are survivors might not even know that there were language within the village and rituals within the village that actually tended to the healing of our people. But a lot of that language has been lost. And so part of the work that we need to do is to bring our people back together, see what we can restore of those healing practices. And then build on top of that, right? Because culture is something that is not dead. Healing culture moves, right? And so because it moves, because we're alive, because we are descendants in the Samoan community, in the Polynesian culture, if you are descendants, you are alive, you have been commissioned by your ancestors to perpetuate your culture against anything that comes up against it. And that's our mental health is really protecting who we are, continuing to do the work of sovereignty about our persons and retain the knowledge that our ancestors have given us for thousands of years. And let's not forget that the disruption of these cultural traditions have only been around for 500 years because of European violence that really entered the rest of the world and did a lot of damage to our communities. And so I think a lot of that, I think 
Dr. Joy DeCruy calls it post-traumatic slave syndrome. I've coined it for Pacific peoples and indigenous people as post-traumatic colonial syndrome. And for our other brothers and sisters, I would call it militaristic syndrome. But those are generational violent events that continue to perpetuate and it's passed on to our communities. And then we're taught that we're responsible, that we're the reason why we're sick. That's the whole lie of the last 500 years of like human existence. And then you're asked to go seek mental health services from people who don't look like you, and you probably align in your mind with the colonizer. So the question that I'd like to ask to the panel, as we want to focus on the individual, but within their community, in the context of their community, how do we think together about integrated mental health services? How can we, rather than squeezing communities within those checklists and operationalized definition of what healthy or not healthy can be, how can we expand and invite healthcare system to serve us the way we want, Ahmed or Jennifer? Yeah, I can jump in on that. And I think there's a lot of conversations about that in, in the essence that I keep hearing about cultural competency, a word that oftentimes I, I don't like very much because nobody can be culturally competent, cultural humility to a certain extent. I'm not even competent in my own culture, to be frank. But I, I think one of the things that we've worked, we've really done through Somal Halport is try to figure out how do we, as health professionals, ensure that our community is served better by the healthcare system, the larger system, and change the attitude that has always been around, which is a top-down attitude where the larger healthcare system knows, public health knows everything about those communities, and therefore, we're going to be able to provide the service they need. The focus has been how do we, as healthcare professionals, go back into the community and essentially start in that organization called Somali Health. Myself as pharmacists, pro- medical doctors, nurses, social workers. And with that, some of the themes that James have mentioned early on, are certain languages that have been lost, right? Certain things that have existed probably within the Somali community that at this point, because of civil turmoil and decades of conflicts within the Somali community, one thing that really I did not know, I didn't understand, to be honest with you, is the word depression didn't have a specific word within the Somali language. But there's a word for it because Somalis are camel herders. That's their lifestyle. Has we been livestock folks who actually roam the East African continent with the animals. And one of the things that the closest definition to depression is the sadness a camel feels when its partner or the other camels die. And it's called kulub. So there was actual translation like for people to relate to exactly what depression is, right, from that context. And so what we've done is we're able to actually have ongoing meetings with the imams of the mosque, the community leaders, the seniors, and try to figure out what is the best way that we can actually continue to have conversations with the healthcare system. And luckily, we've been able to actually have several individuals who have gone into massive social work, nurse practitioners who have got their mental health degrees, and they are coming back into the community and be able to give the community a space whereby they can go and see people that look like them, people that they can have a conversation with and understand them. And then the other concept that comes along with this, there's a lot of privacy and HIPAA that we have to abide by as healthcare professionals, but certain cultures, what I'm going through, my mother needs to know. My, <laughs> my brother needs to understand that they need to come with me. It is a part of a, a support yeah. system that is sometimes frowned upon by the healthcare system that we all practice in because you want to shut that door because this person is 18 years old. But there's a family support system in place. So when they go to these providers that actually understand the culture, 
Then the sister comes in, right? Or the brother can go pick up the medication and say, I need the antidepressant for my brother or sister. But it's not the same way in, in the Western society where someone has to kind of give an authority for you to go and actually pick up their medication for them. So I think trying to understand how do we fit that understanding of different cultures might be difficult. But I think the biggest thing we need to do is how do we actually make sure those communities are actually working in the healthcare itself. Because when you actually have a patient who is coming in and have gone to the mosque for Quran recitation, because that's typically the first line of therapy they go through is going, reading Quran and spending time with the imam. But the imams who we've actually trained and over probably about two years, we used to ask the imams to actually talk about mental health in some of their Friday sermons as an organization, because we were able to do mental health training for the imams. And what would happen is like a patient will show up and it's one o'clock. One o'clock is a time to actually, this prayer time for the five times prayer Muslim praise. You've got a patient in there that tells you, okay, you are here for the next 30 minutes to see your provider. It's one o'clock, 1.15, they got to pray. You as a clinician really need to give them space to go out and pray because they understand the ailment they're going through. Yes, it's psychological, but it's also tied to your spiritual well-being. And we need to understand that as well. I want to do a quick introduction to James Hang. I know he was stuck in traffic who is also one of the founders and was the leader of the Kamai Health Board, along with Jennifer Huang. And they've been doing decades of work in the community. And he's also an interpreter and a cultural mediator and has a lot of experience individually bridging the gap between healthcare providers and patients from the Kamai community. Thanks for coming. Ahmed, you mentioned the diversity of the workforce being really important in helping bridge this gap and care for people's mental health. Jennifer and Joseph, how does that look like for your communities? Because I know if I go, I can't find a lot of Pacific social workers or doctors or Kamai doctors, and I don't know what the pipeline looks like. So what does the work around that look like, both in the short term? But what do we do now? Because it's hard to find that. And then long term and supporting those communities. It's very hard. I myself looking for a mental health therapy, but it's hard is because trust has become a big issue in the community. And as an individual, building trust. And when the war came, many of us lost those trust, even within our own family or within our community. And then secondly, languages is very difficult. And then you have to be comfortable. Every time I go to, if I have an, a problem and I share with someone and then they say, why don't you go to see this counselor, that counselor? And first I wasn't comfortable. And then my fear is, I don't know what to talk about or how I'm going to tell them what, how I feel. And do I believe that talking is helping me? No, it took me a long time, no, and I was grateful to work with all these clinician professionals in the field that I do, psychiatry, doctor, palliative care, social worker, and I was able to learn through all those experience and have those conversations with them formally or with patient or by myself and then educating myself, and I did seeking my own professional. I didn't want my family to know about it. But it's different from Ahmed. So, you know, have everybody and the family to know and understand. So it's 
Mm-hmm. It's very difficult. Every community have a different things. But I have learned over these past 15 years that I've been going out to community with providers to, to do this. We, mental health at the beginning is very hard to talk. People have a lot of stories. So I didn't go straight to talk about mental health. So we're going like talking about diabetes or palliative care or chronic disease. And then people start telling you story. And story very powerful. So I feel people need a space, a safe space to talk. And then someone who understands their need and willing to listen and patient. I think as a clinician, from my point, I think if you want to go to my community to do the work, then slowly you go in there and then they love it. They welcome anybody. I go with them. They are just, they say, when you come again? See, we have this privilege from all the professional people to come to you, what you want to learn, what you want to know, how it can help you. And they tell me, and then I bring them, and then they love it, and the provider love it, and that be a relationship and trust. And it's very helpful. I think that's really important about the location of the care and how we go about mm-hmm. building it to relationships and going to where people are. It also helps with provider well-being, being in a different space, giving care. That's what I hear from you. And James, I want to make space for you too. If I think the question I had posed was about the diversity of the workforce and what does that mean in the short term and long term caring for the Kamai community? And then after you, Joseph can answer from his perspective too. Good afternoon. My apology that I'm late. Jennifer brought a good point that's about trust. Trust is the obstacle to break the barrier. And another thing is the language barrier. And for the Khmer community, it is very small. And it seems like everybody knows each other. Is this a stigma in terms of mental health? People don't want to expose. When you expose that you have mental health, they perceive you as a crazy person. And people don't want to perceive that way. And then you'll be kept out of the community, kept out of the social function. And it's, it's, a shame, it's a shame disease to have and being isolated from the community. I'll just build off of a couple of things that some of the folks have mentioned, which is, and at least for us in the Pacific Islander communities, in the context of you're in a diaspora outside of the village, like Ahmed said, a lot of our folks, the only place they can go to are churches or mosques because in the context of your village, in the context of coming from a place where you see your people, there are doctors, there's so many different positions within your community. But in the context of the U.S., you don't have that. You have your mosque and you have your church. So guess where people are? Going? They, are they resort to church leaders because those are our only options. In a Pacific Islander community, there's only one doctor in the state of Washington that is Pacific Islander and two mental health, licensed mental health professionals. And we've looked in all the nooks and crannies, which is horrible. And it's a statement on the affordability and access issue of education. Pacific Islanders have the lowest attainment in bachelor's degrees, and specifically because it's an economic system that benefits the privilege. And of course, our communities are locked out of higher education and cannot continue to strive to get into these fields so that they can improve their communities. So it's such a critical thing. I think the other thing that I will say is that when Indigenous people greet each other, 
we identify relations, we identify the land that we're on, and we actually acknowledge the person that's in front of you. Without that kind of hospitality and that sort of stewardship that you can provide for people that is not yourself, your humanity is not being seen. And that is what Pacific Islanders over and over encounter when they go into a mental health office, when they go into a mental health institution, is their humanity over and over is not seen. They are dehumanized. They are not acknowledged to their attachment to land, to the relationship that they have with the healer, because that also matters, is how to actually have relationship with your healer. So your healer is not this other, but is actually part of the ecology that you're also with. And so that is a question of, yeah, it's racism. It's all of that, right? That is layered within our system. So I think in order for us to strive towards healing, we actually have to give birth to these healing spaces that are apart from the current system. And that's not to say, because a lot of folks, I think, are very hopeful about reforming mental health institutions and mental health modalities. But I'm all about creating alternative healing and healing justice that exists out of that, because this right now was birthed from violence. Violence is birthed on genocide, it's birthed on slavery, it's birthed on militarism. And I commend the work that Ahmed and others are doing to reform the system. <laughs> I also am part of Department of Health, so there's a part of me that is also hopeful about reform, but I also think that communities need to take charge of their own mental health and create their own spaces. I think looking into the future, a couple of ideas that I think, in my opinion, we keep talking about certain words, health disparities. I think, in my opinion, one of the simplest and an easiest way we can address health disparities is to make communities make their own decisions to a certain extent. And what I mean by that is there are so many healthcare professionals, especially those who are immigrant refugees that come to this country. And I know personally through the Healthport Coalition that we formed, there are about a hundred international medical graduates, doctors who actually graduated from overseas that are actually here in King County, who many of them have years and decades of experience, but they are driving Uber. You know, they work in restaurants, the interpreters in the hospitals. And yet we keep talking about how do we actually address these health issues within the immigrant refugee communities and communities of color. 2018 and 2019, we embarked on this opportunity, this challenge among ourselves as the community health board, the small health board was leading to ensure that those folks are actually accredited to practice medicine here. And it doesn't mean we give people medical degrees. They were supposed to go through a residency program at a minimum three years able to pay themselves if they need to. Of course, there's a rigorous process. Anybody that thinks it's a simple thing doesn't understand what exactly those folks go through. And so many of them wanted to go through that process. But we did have significant challenges. And interestingly enough, here at the University of Washington, the biggest institution in medicine was one of the biggest opponents to that aspect, along with the Washington State University, to the fact that they produce a lot of graduates and from medical school. And that felt like a competition that you have 100 doctors all of a sudden, in the next 10 years, that actually be added to this. I don't know why that was a problem because we always have medical doctor shortages in this country and in Washington State. But I believe that I think a lot of those issues would have been solved. You've got people who are speaking different languages. The only thing a provider from, let's say, Cambodia that practiced several years as a clinician, or even Somalia, or even India, would have a difference is the ICD codes you have to put into the computer. <laughs> Other than that, I think every doctor around the world practices understand the human body really well. 
So if you were to give that opportunity a chance, I think we could honestly solve a lot of those issues whereby we have enough providers and even psychologists that are from different parts of the world that can be trained, retrained, and some of them are willing to do that. Some of them are willing to spend 10 years to go back into school and educate themselves. But we put so many barriers, but I'm happy to report that after several tries, we're able to pass a bill and it was signed to law. But still, there is that structural institutional racism because it requires a hospital, a clinic to actually accept these folks to go through their residency program. So I think we do have those opportunities in place. It's just that we don't allow it. We just keep using certain terms over and over again. And then we've got gatekeepers that oftentimes don't want to see that change, in my opinion. That's actually really important. Sometimes the conversation can be that racism can be concealed under claims of concerns for patient safety. And that's challenging. I want to ask this question about trust, that which is the theme of this conference. You can come to seek trust and try to build it strategically where you can make people trust you to only betray their trust or to only sit and get to your agenda or only to enact your own definitions of the problem and impose it on others to redefine even their mere existence. What does count for you from the perspectives of your community as trustworthy? There are still some people in this institute and others who are authentically and wanting to serve with that genuine attitude. What count for you as trustworthy, as truly and authentically so, from the perspectives of your communities? So, first of all, uh, I think we don't trust each other because we don't understand each other. And so cultural competency will play a big key in that. So if I come to you, I don't know who you are, but I understand if you're from India, I know some, your culture and my Cambodian culture, and then we can understand each other, and then we'll create trust. When I was interpreting at the clinic at PacMed, I have doctors there seeing the patient. They know, oh, this is a Cambodian patient. So they start to learn the word hello, just say the word hello in Cambodian. And when the patient come in the room, or when she come in the room and she'll say hello, the patients just start out laughing. They're so happy. Like you just create that happy moment. And then you also create trust at the same time. And at the end of the session, the doctor and the patient walk out with a big smile. And we go, oh, I can't believe she's holding me. They come back and come closer with the provider and open up. Being a medical interpreter, we learn so much in the waiting room with the patient. And we forbid to say anything besides. We just interpret what the patient said. But we learn so much from the patient. And they didn't express in the room, so we cannot relay this information to the doctor. But we know so much. Right? Oh, oh, I take herbal medicine. Oh, I bought all this herbal medicine that I believe that is going to cure my diabetes. And they told me. All the story in the way when we got inside the room, those information not revealed. And then being a medical interpreter, we were trained, have a pre-session and a post-session. So just relate whatever the patient said, the doctor, we cannot say anything else. Thank you so much. I'll be quick. Okay, promise. <laughs> I know these two are bright, so I want to hear from them after making some statements. But trust keeping, like Ahmed said, is something that we are all capable of, whether you are a 
liberated gatekeeper that centers communities and community choice, or you are an institutional gatekeeper wherever you're at. So I think seeing that as the dynamic that sort of either creates trust or kills trust. And But I think when it comes to the well-being of communities, you really have to find out the most trustworthy people within that community and then resourcing those most trustworthy people to steward the health of those people. There's a saying in our culture, if a fool la mea la la mea, and it's the crown of thorns, starfish has both its poison and remedy. And it's a proverb that speaks to like our belief as people that we're capable of our own healing. The healing is within. The healing is within our communities. Healing cannot come from the outside. And so to me, when I think about trust, I think about the elders in our communities and the roles that they have. And we come from intergenerational villages. And a lot of the mental health of our young people, our teenagers, our youth, our young adults are really stewarded by our grandparents. And they're the most trusted mental health workers for Pacific Islander communities. And we do things like fangongo. Our brother mentioned in the beginning about storytelling. Storytelling is our biggest currency in our communities. And within those stories, retain the messages of healing and also the activity that bonds people, elder to child. And those are the things that I think, as far as mental health, bodies of work that I'm interested as a person of indigenous descent from the Pacific, those are things that I think is most helpful for my communities. Thank you, James. I think just to add to what my colleagues have mentioned, as a provider, a clinician, or this clinic that patients are coming to, trust is key. If someone does not trust the person they're actually seeing, there's likelihood they might not be coming back or they're not going to take your treatment seriously. Now, I know there are great physicians that I know the Somali community relies on who are not Somali providers, particularly at Harborview, who they don't speak Somali, but at the same time have that cultural humility. And I've been able to work with the community for a long time, ever since we came here in the in early 90s. And that just comes down to a very simple thing whereby initially, what type of interaction did you have with those patients? And our community is very oral, very communicative by sharing information. As I mentioned early on, when they find a good provider, they will share, go to that guy. That guy will give you better treatment and understand you better than where you're going. Because sometimes folks from the Somali community, a lot of times will share certain things in order to make sure that they get the correct information, especially if they're new to the country. And also, I think the other aspect is, as a pharmacist, and I operate Othello Station Pharmacy, which is one of the only Black-owned independent pharmacies in the state of Washington. We have a very large number of communities of color that actually use the pharmacy, and mainly because they know they can come in and talk to folks in different languages. But at the same time, I can relate to them, to what my colleague mentioned early on, talking about herbal medications. So you are taking antidepressants but you also were told to take certain things from your community that back home people used to take. So does that Caucasian physician talk to you about the black seed, about what you're taking? Does it work well with your antidepressant? That's a conversation they really want to have with you because they trust that aspect. But they feel like sometimes they cannot have that conversation with their doctor because you're talking about habit soda, which is a black seed that technically treats everything according to my community. <laughs> but there are documented drug interactions and we always have to have that conversation like that, that comes in trust. So therefore, when I'm talking to that clinician about the medication, we'll also mention that, hey, next time, let's have that conversation about that medicine that the patient is also taking. So trust is key, but also depends as you as a provider, whether you're a doctor or social worker, how do you interact with these individuals? 
that is the most important thing to me that I can take. For me, I learned a lot of elderly went to Buddhist and then a lot of time they trust their peer. So I learned that they're sharing their medicine in the community. We went to a home visit and then we went to a temple visit and sometimes they came to the clinic and then they asked me first, should I tell them I take this or not? And then they say, can you ask the doctor, is it okay I take this? Because my friend or my neighbor told me that I have diabetes and they take this and it works very well. <laughs> <laughs> so the trust is built within their own group already. And then you work in there, they want you to validate. I say, you should ask your doctor. They have the knowledge of the medicine, then I do. I cannot do that. And I, I told them honestly, then it's very helpful. So they learned that every session, James say we learn a lot when we interact with our patient as a medical interpreter, and then we work as a team with the clinician, and they trust us to rely those communication. Thank you, Jennifer. We have a few minutes for questions. If anybody has some, I want to open it up to the floor. So my question is, so we know that ICD-10 diagnosis, all of that, what kind of health tools can you provide us for allowing us to listen to your stories where so much of our stuff is, here's an assessment, right? So you come in for your first mental health. I didn't ask you these questions that feel so polar opposite of everything and establishing. So what guidance to help bridge that? I don't like those tools. <laughs> when you ask that, did you feel blue? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to my community. <laughs> That's true. We all know that question. <laughs> but I, I, I could not illustrate and explain or interpret. I have no word for it. And I say, it's just, I don't know, the assessment, I feel like, wow, well, should I say? Seven days, I blew three days. <laughs> what is blue? <laughs> I honestly, I don't know. I keep thinking what is a better term or what a better tool to assess it. But I learned that they usually tell you the story. They will come with story. I say, could you just say yes or no? But they go on and on and then I have to. And he said, and the doctor said, what did they say? <laughs> And then I had to interpret because they will tell you the story instead of that. I just say one question on that. So like James said, we sit in, in the waiting room with the patient and they told her all of this. But we come in, we had to do what the clinician is talking. We cannot use those information. And then when the doctor asked the patient, do you have any question? And they say no. And I say, oh my God, <laughs> why don't you tell them that? Yeah, so those are the things that so... I learned to educate them, to advocate them. Two months ago, I went back after three years of pandemic. The community cannot do in-person meeting. So I bring a doctor who doing about palliative care because population is aging and a lot of older adults are dying during that period of time. And we want to help palliative care and clinician know to do this adventurative because some of them don't have a family. So, so I feel like the pandemic is a awakening of this mental illness and then people are dying to tell the story in tears. <laughs> Therapeutic violence is what you're talking about, which is everybody's experience, right? <laughs> and so really, you're not talking about healing. You're really talking about harm reduction. 
to a system that is inherently violent. And for me, therapeutic violence can be mitigated through relational questions. Also, like, there are questions where you allow the people to lead and speak. You cannot choose the ones that are based on power building for the clients and really don't ask the deficit questions, but learn to listen through, like, between the words and between the sentences and have the person lead with their stories. And also getting out of the office. Like, I used to work in a mental health department and it's just so dehumanizing. You go into some sterile, clinical office that stinks and there's no cultural art in it and it's just it's a very threatening place and for most people they're claustrophobic we're all claustrophobic because of our nature as human beings right so like how do you think about different spaces to meet with people and your clients and also like the intake process should be able to take one or two months it should not be a one and only first of all you're getting paid thousands of dollars when you tier our communities so take the time to tear our communities. Otherwise, you are, first of all, a complicit racist in the system because you're doing a bare minimum to care for our people. And you're getting paid for a whole year or even two years at the tier. And that's just disgusting because then our people gets recycled through the system, whether it's your health department or within the hospitals. It's like therapeutic violence all around. And basically, it's people fighting for clients. People are Fighting literally for clients because that's how you get your budget within your mental health departments. So I'd say harm reduction, find out all those strategies to reduce that. I'll share a story I shared with my therapist, white female, that I am struggling to know in my personal encounters whether this white person, actually somebody who is genuinely sees me as an equal or a woke who's still working on stuff or somebody who's concealing and I'm there token person or their full-blown racist, her response was generalizing about all white people or looking in that form of classification is violence. So in that interaction, I became the violent as I am seeking mental health to help me deal with stuff that I've dealt with as an immigrant in this country. So this is the notion of harm reduction is we're not helping people. We're actually giving them more traumas and more pain that that we better actually back off and leave them alone. But that's just, thank you for sharing this beautiful message. I am very grateful for everyone who participated with this voice and Raj, especially for facilitating this conversation. Thanks again, everyone, for joining me on another episode of Healthcare for Humans. If you liked this episode, as always, my ask to you is please share it with one other person and go to healthcareforhumans.org to sign up to be part of the community. And lastly, thank you to Tessa Chu and Maharazaki for supporting this podcast, making sure it's the best it can be, and helping with the creation and the production of all parts of this podcast. Thanks again. I'll see you next time.